Right, today on Animals Advocate Radio, I'm really happy to welcome Amelia Lease, who has co-authored a book, Think Like a Vegan. Now, many of us have got different ideas about veganism, and I find it really hard sometimes. I, I'm like, am I a vegan? Am I a plant-based eater? Um, because if I think back to how veganism used to be 30, 40 years ago, I take my hat off to people that went the whole way with it because it's much easier these days so hi Amelia hi what can you tell us hi Yvonne it's nice hi. to be here thank you so thank much thank you what can you tell us about how to think like a vegan um so my co-author and I Eva Carolambidis and I um we wrote the book because in our advocacy work so I I used to do a lot of um uh festivals in North America um, with the, the, the Vegandale food and vegan food and drink festivals. And I was under this tent called um, Why Should I Go Vegan? Ask Here. And Eva used to help organize these, these festivals. And one of the things that we always found is that people would come up and say uh, either to her or to me, like, oh, oh, Eva can explain it or Emmy can explain it, whatever questions those they were. Or people, uh, vegans and non-vegans would say, well, vegans would say, I don't know how to explain veganism. I don't know how to talk about it and, and, and so on. So we said, well, gosh, you know, we are not some, you know, super duper experts. Why can't we make uh, some sort of tool so that uh, we can explain, we can use it to explain veganism to both vegans and non-vegans. So vegans can use the book to hone their uh, discussion skills and their thinking skills and so forth. And the non-vegans can read the book and take veganism more seriously, which is something that very much does happen when I speak with non-vegans who have read the book, irrespective of whether they eventually go vegan. And basically, the book goes through veganism in, in uh, uh, from, from the basics, from and meaning from its philosophical basics, basics um, of basic fairness, uh, all the way through how that's woven into our life and and in terms of economics, in terms of history, in terms of land use, uh, we we talk a little bit about about uh, environmental issues and about health as well. But and we also really focus it around. Uh, issues of social justice and and show how really it's all very much connected. So we talk about uh, animal issues, but also really show how that's also about people and um, and in in a very uh, accessible, digestible way. Uh, the book is broken up in, in 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 kind of essays, if you will. So somebody can come to the book and dip in and out without uh, feeling that they have to return to the beginning and read it again and so forth. So it becomes a very, very useful, um, uh, well, as, as I said earlier, a very much a very a, a useful tool. Um, the other thing that we have that's a bit different than other books out there, at the end of each chapter, we have three or four uh, bullet point takeaways from the preceding chapter. So if okay. you're thinking, oh, let me, what, how is this connected with social? Oh, wait, yeah, this is the chapter that has all that. And then uh, the final chapter is uh, a, a collection of situations, sort of fact patterns or scenarios, if you will, where, um, and they're all real. 
uh, these are either scenarios or situations that either I have been in personally or Eva has been in or friends have been in or people have asked me questions about. And frankly, some of them I've overheard um, just existing in different places. Can you give, can you give uh, us an example of one of them, please? Uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a very simple one. Um, it, it's uh, it's about um, when you, you're at someone's house and you're there for a dinner party. And, um, you know, how do you, you haven't told the uh, host that you're vegan. And so, you know, how do you deal with that? Or how would you deal with that? How might you deal with it a next time? Um, how do you deal with the questioning and, and so on? So we, we kind of go through. That's uh, a really go- com- that's a really common one on, on Twitter and other places, and that yeah. is such a common thread. And people get really upset, and I found it quite heartbreaking when there's you know there's young people and they've gone to I don't know you know the parents or family dinner, and their main thing is not oh great we're going and th- we always enjoy this. It's the dread of. Yeah the ridicule and people they love perhaps being quite unkind about it when really as you say it's just a little bit of understanding needed and to not want to hurt an animal is really not the end of the world yes exactly we shouldn't get so uptight about it maybe yeah I mean you know when you're dealing with family you're always dealing with a lot of different dynamics too so it gets it gets very complicated but one of the things that we talk about also in the book, and, and I also talk about in one of uh, one of the episodes of, of my podcast, that's also called Think Like a Vegan, is it, precisely that. Like, how might we want to think about when we communicate with others and we speak with others about veganism? How should we both prepare ourselves and interact? Um, and it's not just about having all the facts at your fingertips. That's all very good as well. But it's also creating the dynamic where you can have a, a conversation. And, and I think it's easier sometimes to do that in person uh, rather than um, on the Internet and on social media. But even then, even, you know, uh, uh, taking our suggestion about creating the space or creating the right atmosphere to have that kind of conversation. And, and basically, my tip always is start from the beginning. If somebody says, well, why don't you eat honey? And again, this is an actual example from my my life. Why don't you eat honey? I used to early on, and I've been vegan for 10 years now. I used to say, I used to just go into the answer. And, and that assumes that people actually know what veganism is. But from my experience, people don't. From my experience, even doing author talks and all over in different places, one of the things that I always get is, oh, I didn't know veganism was more than just food and that it was a whole philosophical and ethical outlook and and so on, that it was a way of life. They don't know. And see, I found it surprising the first time it happened, but then it happened a second, a third, a fourth, and it happens at every single author talk that I give. Every single one. There's always at least one person (laughs) who's like, whoa, I had no idea. Even though there are so many products, you know, just like, as you said, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we didn't have the products, but now we have the products all over everywhere. And so the word, the word is no longer an alien word. But it's yet, a tricky one, though, the isn't it? Because, is lost. 
Yeah, or, or, because 30, 40 years ago, or if you're, maybe if yeah. I, maybe the wrong term, but if I just use it for a minute, a proper vegan, so you wouldn't use any leather products, you wouldn't eat honey, um, you know, you wouldn't do, you wouldn't have a pet. Whereas nowadays, there's the ethical dilemma because we do a good job by taking and rescue pets and having pets. Yeah. But, well, but then mean, you, yeah. But so it's, it's perhaps making sure that people know that it's okay to relax about it. It's only like everything, just doing what makes you feel okay, the best you can do. And the honey thing, see, now I went plant based and it took me quite a while to realize what having, um, honey from you know people keeping bees and things did to wild bee populations and then I was I knew people that were bringing in queen bees from other countries and then I realized the problems that that can cause to bees in this country and it's another rabbit warren to go down really isn't it right well the way I look at it so going back to to setting the stage so saying hey look I'd be happy to talk about honey but do you mind if we just step back and and let me just tell you what veganism means so to the extent possible and practicable not to use animals for any purpose so and then that's they say oh okay yeah you can you know, you can you can go back to that, and I'd be happy to listen to the definition. So that way, you get their buy-in and um, in, in, buy-in into the conversation. So you're like, okay, good. Well, that's the definition. That's what it is. So then you say, okay, then the next step. So the next step is, well, I don't use animals for any purpose, and that's the thing. We have to look at the use of animals because once we've gone to treatment, we have already accepted that use is okay treatment of animals is secondary. It's the second step. Once we have decided that it's okay to use animals, then we think about treatment. But the real question is sort of like if you, you know, you have something wrong, the the symptom, when we use animals and how that happens, um, the treatment, that's more a symptom of the decision that we've made to use them. So we have really have to question why using any animal is necessary. And the, the reason is, well, it's not necessary. Actually, the, the, the answer is it's not necessary. So then you go back, you say, so this is where I'm coming from, that using animals is unnecessary. So then, then you can say, right, are you, so do you have any questions there? And often you'll get people to say, oh, well, that's interesting. And then they'll ask questions around the question. Then eventually you can get to the point about, about the honey. And I have a, a very uh, sort of short essay about, about honey in, in the book. And ultimately, yes, you have all of the problems with, uh, uh, with, with wild bees and you have problem uh, the ethical problem of using the bees themselves. And ultimately, that's what we've got to look at to strip away a lot of the excess stuff. So just to step back, say, wait, why is it okay to use them at all in the first place? And that makes things a lot more simple so that you don't have all of these questions floating around before you even answer the first step. And I think I that see, that's... I see, I see what you mean. Yeah. But I suppose bees are a really good example to talk about, mainly because they don't get slaughtered, I suppose. But, but they, they do. Got, they do, but it's not like the sheep or the lamb or the cows or anything well, else going through what they go death through. is death to one of them is death is everything because oh. they only got the one life well that so, is very true that's very true people <laughs> so we all have well, one life 
in a climate crisis, we need the pollinators, don't they? Yes. And, 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 and I'm only saying that just really because if you, if you can get a good conversation going, it's always, you know, it's always very gratefully received. It is by me anyway. If someone will listen, yeah. it's like, hallelujah, thank you very much. I do appreciate it genuinely. And then you can talk about all kinds of things. And as you say, animals wild farm domestic are linked to so many things and that's the lovely thing about your book is it joins so many dots and actually there's so much human um suffering attached to keeping animals making their crops doing all kinds of things and obviously the poor souls running for their lives in climate crisis extreme weather events absolutely Um, so that was the kind of lovely thing about you know the, the small portion of your book that I, I read that it's it's meant to help and encourage and be upbeat which is what we all need to be doing isn't it yes i mean we don't uh, so in the book there are no scary pictures we don't use uh, graphic images but of course the facts are the facts so you can't get away from saying how many animals uh, uh, die every year. You can't get away from that because that's that's the reality. And and the the numbers are so big. Now that's an un- unpleasant fact, but I can't really help that. That one is not. Uh, that's not not trying to be scary. It's not trying to scare anyone into anything. It is what it is. And also, I mean, you know, in, in terms of, we don't talk about veganism. We're, we're not. People get concerned around the word judgment. We judge every day. We judge whether we're going to cross the road. We judge whether we think someone is trustworthy or not. Uh, We judge whether we're able to do something or not every single day. So judgment has a lot of, uh, it's a useful thing is how we get through life. But certainly we are not judging people on, on, on whether they are good or bad people, because that is really not up to us. But at the same time, we have to talk about what what's happening. We have to talk about uh, the animals, the, the number of animals that are being killed every year. And we are we do have to talk about uh, the people who work in animal agriculture who are also getting sick, who have PTSD and and who are themselves very much exploited. And not just in the animal agriculture history, but um, I mean, industry, rather not history, although historically, I guess that would work, too. Um, <laughs> But but also, you know, we talk about a bit about um, the uh, people who work in, uh, in in agriculture as as plant agriculture as well, because exploitation of humans is not a good thing, no matter where it comes from. So it's not that we're saying, oh, you know, you know everything was, would be perfect if uh, if animal agriculture uh, were just better with their workers and everything like that. No, I mean, you know, you've got to talk. If you're going to have a grown-up conversation, we got to have a conversation about everything. So I think that makes it a much more honest uh, and more productive conversation um, than uh, than perhaps keeping things focused on a, on a narrow on a narrow path. And you know, it, it makes it human because the one thing that we can control in our life, to some extent, some people can't, but for the for the majority of us, or for many of us, let's put it that way. I don't want to use the word majority because that's not right. We control 
what sorts of things we can eat. It's more difficult for us to control how we get around. Depending on where you live, you may or may not have access to public transportation. There just may not be any. Um, And even public transportation in and of itself is, you know, is that the the well, that's right. All be all. It's, it's hopeless in some places. And it, it, exactly. that's always my point. You, tomorrow, we cannot switch off our energy. We can't no, switch off the power. No, exactly. But we can. You're absolutely right. Every single time we buy food, we have a choice. Yes, Every exactly. Time. Every time. And, some, and, and where we don't. So if you, you know, we have to also be conscious that there's food apartheid. And that's a particular term that I use. And, and I talk about the creator of that. Uh, of that term, but it's food apartheid, where some people have access to some food and some people don't have access to some food. And the some food in particular is fresh vegetables and so on. If there isn't access to that, if there's food apartheid, then we need to talk about the food apartheid. That's the problem. The problem isn't the food itself. The problem is the political and economic and sociopolitical uh, uh, conditions that have made this food apartheid something that's part of our human existence, which is wrong. And, you know, and all, all these sorts of things. And, you know, from uh, when I live in London, I see lots of different places in London, and it's a very different city where. Um, there's access to a lot of vegetable foods, not just fresh vegetables, because fresh isn't the end all be all. You can have canned vegetables, you can have frozen vegetables, and all of those are just as good as as the fresh ones. Yes, you can say some are better than the other. Sure, whatever. But at the end of the day, all of these different types exist. And some of us will have access to X or Y or Z. And and the access to all these different things is the important the important thing. If someone doesn't have access to that type of food, and they only have access to food that is inherently harming them in some way, as well as harming the animal who is the product at the at the end of that food or at the beginning of that food, better said, that's the issue we got to talk about. And and that too, realizing that and seeing that if somebody is not vegan and says, well, you know what, let me go have a look around and see what kind of vegetables and fruit and, and beans and pulses and whatever are available to me in my local market. If you walk around your local market and you're not seeing this food, make a note of that. Think about that. What is happening? What What are the political and economic realities that are happening in your community and that's that's a very good point because obviously when when you know when i say you know you can go and you can pick up what you want today or tomorrow in a supermarket that is the majority however i also know from talking to the humane society a while ago in south africa you know people have got a few chickens maybe a goat maybe a sheep and that is all there is you know they're going through a drought they're going through everything so that's what they're going through so then as you say if you're somewhere where if it's south africa or england or anywhere you need to ask the question yeah and think it's okay to ask the question and you know can someone help because in south africa for example hsi have done um a plant-based um kitchen and helping local people and do all kinds of things and you never quite know what is available until you have a look and ask exactly exactly i've i've been fortunate to be able to travel to various countries in africa 
one of the th- and, and spend a, a relatively a, a significant amount of time and getting to know people on the ground. One of the things that that I keep coming across is how people are encouraged to leave the quote traditional um, foods behind and instead adopt um, more modern foods like pizza. Um, um, pizza is fine, by the way. I'm making it tonight myself. Okay? <laughs> so pizza is fine. There's nothing wrong with pizza. I'm from Naples. I love pizza. Um, but I'm just saying, like you know, like yes. the the no, there's a difference. The big chains there? type pizzas. You can make and, a healthy one, or you can eat or, something that is, you know, going to give you. You know, diabetes, yes. and 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 you, you know, and and they have the different types of 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 pre prepared foods and so on, so where they are losing the connection to the incredible uh, plant based foods that are that are plentiful in uh, in markets. Uh, in you see, this goes many back countries. to you saying what's available. I remember watching mm. um, a cookery program years ago. And um, the chef, I think, was in the Greek islands or somewhere like that. And he walked down the road and he literally grabbed a handful that looked like a bouquet of flowers of herbs. So it was, yeah. you know, huge. And he used the whole thing in a dish. Now, here we go, you know, in our supermarket, a little pot of herbs and you get about three sprigs and you <laughs> And but, yeah, that's but, the difference, isn't it? Yeah, but like, but even that, like, you know, we go to the supermarket and we have three herbs, but that's because that's how they're packaged. Yes. That is the economic model that the supermarket functions on. Yeah. And again, I mean, I'm really fortunate because part of the time I live up in rural Scotland, where I am right now, where we're having this conversation, um, and I, I'm really fortunate that there's a, one of the early... Um, organic distribution of vegetables was actually set up here, um, wow. uh, up, up here. And, and this chap uh, has been doing it um, for about, you know, since the eighties. So, you know, a long time. And, uh, um, you know, you, you can, you can get loads of, loads of vegetables and even, even up here in, in far North Scotland in it that are not packaged up in plastic and so forth. But again, you know, their choices might be different. Their choices might be a little more limited or you might not get the basil that you want or the this is and the that's it. So you have to, it's exactly as you say, access, availability, what's here. And and also it's a little bit of us adapting to, to that as well. You know, say, well, you know, I can't get fresh, the best tomatoes here. So I'm again, I'm going back to my, where I'm from. I'm from Naples. In Italy, we have amazing tomatoes. The tomatoes in the UK, a little bit less than amazing. So I've adapted to that, you know, but because I have to adapt to that and I'm in a different place. If I wanted everything exactly like I would get it in Naples, I should just be living there, not here, you know? So I'm making light, but it's true. It's also us adapting to, to what, what we've, what we've got. So and you you just triggered my memory about something that I did. So last week I was writing a piece for for my blog, which is Emmy's Good Eating. And I wrote about our experience um, in Mexico recently. And most of the time we had amazing food. Fantastic. But sometimes we got caught out when places were shut. The, it was the, the local day for, it was the, the weekday, the... Uh, 
the local place, uh, vegan place was closed and then all the other places were closed. Anyway, our only option was either nothing or having a baguette. So we bought two baguettes, sat down <laughs> and had two baguettes. I mean, you know, like not every day. And then we had like a banana, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, you just make do sometimes you, do. you just, you know what you make do. Why do we make do? And why is that okay? I mean, you know, you're not going to, we have the privilege see, though, I, of I not having to, to live like that all the time, but go ahead. We, I used to go for days out sometimes and happily go hmm. into the local bakery and get some fresh rolls or something and whatever drink I had and be really, really happy just sat there eating some delicious bread. And it's only since being then plant-based, you think, oh my God, that's all I've got, a bit of bread roll. And yet yeah. it actually was never a worry before. Exactly. It's fine. And, and it kind of makes you smile in some ways. Yeah. It, it, and that's the thing. It's fine. We don't have to have complicated meals all the time. No. And it, the, the thing is, and going back to the basics, why are we doing this? Why are we doing it? Because we are putting, we are saying, oh, you know what? The least I can do for animals is not use them. That's yes. a minimum. That's like a basic ethical minimum. Like, oh, I am not going to exploit other creatures on this planet. I'm going to have a piece of bread and a banana. Fantastic. The end. I mean, you know, so when you go back to that and say, this is why I'm doing it. This is what it means. And and this is what I'm showing when I'm doing that. I'm showing that to myself and I'm just showing animals the most basic of respect. I mean, you know, then that's it. Then you're like, okay, yep, baguette's fine. I'm just going to sit here and and have it. Thanks. You know, I think that's the thing. And for those people that don't want to look at the the hard end of it, which is, you know, when animals get slaughtered, you know, it's there is a lighter way to when you know deep down that they are going through pain and it's not necessary because there's no point having a load of science if we don't follow it. Um, you know, then you've got others like myself. I've made myself watch it. I used to have animals and used to have them killed for food. And I stood there holding them while they'd been killed. And I realized that it didn't matter whatever you did. It didn't matter how kind it was done. Whatever you did, they did not want to die. Of course not. That, that last second, they looked at me. I looked at them. And, you know, I went down from buying supermarket stuff to going to a biodynamic place to do it myself. Still someone's life. Yeah. Still someone's absolutely. life. And I didn't need to do it at all. Ex Exactly. And that's a really powerful thing for you to know that and to to um, uh, to say that story, to share that story, because ultimately that's the thing. Um, and actually and actually in the book, I've got a, a luxury hotel thought experiment. Like, OK, everybody lives in the luxury hotel. You have everything you got you want. It, this is talking about how treatment doesn't doesn't really matter because ultimately it's life that matters the same door. So yeah you, you live I used to call it the Mandarin Oriental um uh, thought experience experiment because it's one of the fanciest hotels so and I say basically pretend that you and your entire family everybody from newborns to aged you all live in the Mandarin Oriental you have everything given to you you don't have to worry about anything you sleep in the most comfortable bed everything like that but every night Whilst you're sleeping, you don't even know it's happening. Whilst you're sleeping, somebody comes along and executes you. And then the next morning you wake up and that individual is no longer there. It's exactly. It's not a matter of the treatment. It's a matter of the actual thing that we've decided to do, which is use. 
So, you know, that's right. Animals, animals are fathers, sons, daughters, Mm. mothers. They are, you know, they're they're friends. They have people. They have those they like. They don't like. They have some they want to play with. They have some that they'd rather not be anywhere near. And, you know, anybody's anything to do with an animal or anybody that's read any science whatsoever knows this doesn't matter if you want to know it or you don't you know it you know it now exactly and it's the thing is each of those things that you said every animal does it in their own way it doesn't have to be to the standard of human whatever the standard of human would actually be because even us we do all of those things in our own particular ways some of us like having a lot of people around some of us don't some of us are good friends some of us are less than good friends you know, all sorts of things. And we each do it differently. None of those things of how we behave or how we relate to our families or to the external world, none of those things are inherently morally relevant. They are just external things. So the morally relevant thing is that we all have this sentience, meaning that wanting to live that one more moment. And and sentience itself has got to be simplified to just that. It's wanting to live that one more moment that makes a, makes all the difference that binds us all together and i think that is the real crux of where we have to look at um how how we relate to one another as humans and how we relate to one another human versus versus or with vis-a-vis the the non-humans that we share this planet with and i sometimes wonder if by acknowledging the sentience, some people think they're almost going to lose a bit of power on this earth, but it's not. You know, you actually gain. It's actually quite enlightening, and you feel probably more connected, and you feel more relaxed. This, you feel more connected. You feel mm. more connected. That is uh, bang on. I completely <laughs> agree. Absolutely bang on. You feel more connected. You're not losing anything. You're acknowledging this incredible wonderful world that we live in, even in its most basic and banal. And I know there's horrible things that are going on. I know that. But there's wonderful moments and there's moments of wonder and and love and kindness all over the place. And, And recognizing those, seeing those and seeing even those that we don't understand. I don't really fully understand how the migratory birds that get here and then go home, how that all works. I don't have to, but I recognize that they're here with me. I'm here with them. Yes. They are not external to me. And I'm not, I'm part of the same sphere of, of existence and without them. And we have a much lesser world and we have a world that off, that, that we're not going to be able to live in a nice way on. So Oh, exactly. It, exactly. It's, it's, we we rely on every single animal that is meant to be here for our green blue. Yep, exactly. Every one of them. Exactly. I, we do need to have a little chat about your rewilding in mm. Scotland. This is something I'm deeply passionate about is um, outdoor spaces and nature. And some one thing that I would like to know, because... Um, you know, when you've got a rewilding project, there is a, a problem, maybe, with deer. How yep. do you do you do you have them on your 
rewilding project and how if so how do you how do you manage the animals because we want them to be there however you need to establish certain things or do you just find that if you have enough space it does just kind of naturally evolve um excellent questions and all of the above so um <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the that's the short answer but the the more complicated the longer answer so yes we have a, a rewilding project in uh, the highlands in scotland just south of loch ness uh, if anybody's interested to look it up it's birchfieldhighlands.org and it's 100 acres that we're trying to rewild. And in that process, uh, we're learning lots of different things and we have different collaborators and, and, and so on that we're working on actually figuring out uh, what's there on site in terms of uh, fungi, in terms of flora and fauna. And uh, one of the, the issues that we have, and actually I, I give a talk about about rewilding and now and again about uh, about deer and the issues and so forth. Uh, and I think your listeners will be interested in, in this little factoid. There are uh, 22 to 23 million sheep in the UK. And in comparison, there are 2 million deer in the UK. However, the concentration of discussion over um, the harm that is caused by ruminants is always surrounded, is always centered on deer, it which is. I find um, quite ironic when the numbers are so well, um, shall we say, stark. Uh, they are. 20, 22 but million, 2 maybe, million. And, and maybe then because, as you say, they're so concentrated mm. in, in my fields. I've had a great problem with deer because I could literally look out and see deer, about yeah, 100 everywhere. deer in my fields, yeah. deer poo everywhere. And they could actually go out over thousands and thousands of acres of moorland and everything else. But they choose and then they're eating like the trees I'm trying to plant yeah. and everything else. So it ends yeah. up with a whole load of deer fencing. Yeah. And, yeah. and then I just cringe when they try and get through it. And thankfully they can't. But I know. It is, but that that's probably it, though. As you say, there are so many so they're, they're, sheep they're, and everything else. They're just too squashed. Well, exactly. So it goes back to something that you said is space. So you've got you've got twenty two million sheep. So what we've done is we've deforested the land to create pasture, um, and this is over over a few hundred years. Well, actually, even longer than that, because actually Britain was 50% had lost 50% of its native forest already by the time the Romans arrived, which was in 52 BCE. So um, it's been a long time. Um, it has. And uh, we, we, we have limited amounts of space. We have limited amounts of forests. The deer need forests and we don't have them. Uh, we have lots of pastures and that's a problem. Deer poop everywhere and sheep poop everywhere. And that's just the way it is. Um, so we have an environment that's uh, in, in out of out of balance. Uh, if a balance, it, it doesn't it doesn't function as the as it would in a, uh, a more diverse and whole uh, system of biodiversity. We just don't have that. So when you have spaces where you're trying to grow trees, uh, it is difficult. Now, tr deer are also, they tend to be kind of localized. They like what they like and they like to hang out where they like to hang out. And it's usually in the same place. So if they, 
they they're a little bit like cats in some ways I've started to realize <laughs> which is which is not something I could, it's not a conclusion I thought I was ever going to get to but here we are um so they like to be where they like and they have their habits and so forth and they do they eat the little shoots of the trees that are coming up the little saplings and so forth they eat all of that and because they are relegated to smaller and smaller spaces people say oh well it's the deer that are eating everything well we we cut everything down so that we could have sheep pastures so what do you want the deer to actually do they got to eat we've created this problem but then we are not talking about the problem as such we're talking about the only thing that we do is talk about they're paying the ultimate price with their lives for a problem we created and that's they like, do that's so so where you are um yeah. i know the area i went there about two or three years ago ah right I did. Oh, I did. I did my finally got my tour of Scotland in. Nice. So yes, it's deep in my heart now. So where you are, I mean, there's a lot of space out there. So the although I will say, in my whole ten days on the last holiday, I saw one deer, one. That was it. And yeah. I thought, where are they? Where are so, they? So depending on where, yeah, I know. I, sometimes you don't see them at all, and, and sometimes you do. We do have. We do have an issue in one place um, where the deer are because they got fenced in, not by not by us, but by the people who owned the place before us. Uh, and they actually accidentally fenced the deer in. So the deer in and they um, that's where they've lived for many, many years. And some of them were born there and that's all they know. There is space for them to go outside in other places. But they so like for you, they're they not like. a problem. They're not well, a problem for you. It's it is a problem that we are dealing with in the sense of okay. we are thinking about how to how to maybe how to get them out of the enclosed area so that the trees can grow in that area. We're also using a, a product called Trico, which is uh, rendered sheep fat um that you spray on the plants so that they don't um, that you spray spray on the seedlings and on on the small trees so that they don't eat them and that's working and before anybody says anything yes i know it's a non-vegan product but i am also trying to not actually execute the deer so um this is one of those moments where going back to the definition of yes. veganism is important to the extent possible and practicable the thing is we live in a non-vegan, and I always say capitalist, we live in a non-vegan capitalist world. So we've exactly. got to do Can't... what we can do. Yes, so, exactly. So we're trying out the Trico and we're going to see how that works. We're trying out uh, just um, creating more of a disturbance so the deer will go out. And the thing is, um, culling deer, killing them, let's use the correct words, um, killing them doesn't actually work either because you still don't have, you still have more. You get rid of a group of deer who've always been in that area. The next lot comes the in. The next lot yeah. is going to come in. And and it, this is not me saying it as a vegan and animal person. This no, is, no, I've, this I've is seen from, it for years. Yeah, yeah, you've seen it. People that I know who have uh, estates and they're like, yeah, well, we shoot the deer and then they come back. You know, these are non-vegan folks. But but people are very clear about the reality of it, you know, and and they're also very clear that that it's an it's um it's a not very well functioning ecosystem. 
let's talk about the good bits about the rewilding yes. project let's so, talk about the you know hmm. how far you've come with it and you know what you've noticed and the, and the you know the good stuff so the good stuff is well first of all it takes really slow well it takes a really long <laughs> time because trees grow very slowly so one of the people that we work with is adam watson featherston who uh, was the founder of Trees for Life, if people are familiar with that. Um, and he says, you're now on tree time and you need to look at the world through tree, tree time, which I think is really interesting because it does give yes. you a, a patience or a perspective. Um, so what we have found that is that there's lots of really interesting uh, uh, fungi on, on site. Uh, so lots of different mushrooms and uh, lots of different um which which tell you the health of of the soil and what's happening there so that's really important we have also found there's a peat bog uh, a peat bog that in some places is 5 uh, 5 meters deep oh my goodness and 5 meters deep in a peat bog may not sound exciting to some no it sounds very deep but it's it's very deep and it yeah. signals thousands of years of uh, 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 of vegetable material and matter oh. that has been compressed there for for thousands of years, and what's interesting is that nobody knew the peat was there because the uh, it wasn't on the peat bog map, and uh, that um, was something no, so people didn't know if it's not on the peat the official peat bog map it doesn't exist, but it actually what quite actually exists. Yeah. Um, so, so that was really good. Um, and also it's been really good having, um, I, we think that access to nature, um, and is important for everyone. Um, doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, uh, race, class, people, nature is for everybody. And that's one of the things that we have focused on. And we've been very lucky to be able to to uh, um, extend invitations to all sorts of people to come on site and experience nature for themselves, which is great. Um, and seeing how people uh, relate to the space and are inspired by being in nature is really great. And this is not just folks who are always in nature. This is folks who are urban people or people who live in the suburbs and they're just not, you know, they have different experiences with nature the, where the nature might be a little bit, let's say, more organized rather than a bit more wild, like where we are. So that's been really great. And for for me personally, I mean, I you know, I know that nature is complex and everything is dependent on each other but actually seeing that and saying oh well why don't we do this or that and plant this and that and the other thing and then you say oh well wait because that's going to have an effect on this next thing and then oh and if we do this oh let's think about this oh now we've learned this thing so we've got to put that into the mix so then you realize how what a complex knot it all is. And you also realize how complicated it is to straighten it all out and, and kind of have a uh, have things function a little bit better. But that learning do, process is really important. Sorry, do you ever put, do something, plant something or have an area, you know, 
going wild, doing what it wants to do. And then realise and then it's, oh, okay, can't touch that now for a little while. You know, do, do you find as you're moving along with your project that you're getting more wildlife in? We are hoping that that's the case. We don't know yet because it does okay. take a little bit of time. We've only been going since 2017. Okay. So it, it, it will take, but that is exactly why, because we want to be able to show that because be, we want to know that ourselves. Um, this is why we've undertaken a, a baseline study over the last couple of years. And of course, the pandemic slowed everything right down and we weren't able to to um, finish those uh, baseline studies as quickly as originally we had thought. But that's one of the things that that we want to do. We want to make sure we we actually know what's there now versus you know what there will be in 15, 20 years time and and so forth. So that's still in the very early stages. But we're doing lots of interesting things with that with uh, with our um, our partners, um, which is uh, Acom, University of Cumbria, the Lifescape Project. Uh, rewilding mycology and Alan Watson Featherstone and and uh, and other people, we've done lots of interesting different studies, including um, eDNA and air eDNA. So, like looking at the DNA that's left by a variety of animals who may be in the area, checking out what are the remnant DNA that's left in the water. There's a there's a river that's at the end um, on our on our property, and uh, uh, you know, seeing it's a full on happening. project, isn't it? It, it it's it's totally full on project. Some of these things I I are complete mysteries to me as how they work, which is you know, it, it it's it's fascinating. Um, can you can you tell us again what the website is, please? I'm sure people would love to have a look. Uh, it's called it it is. I will I'll read it more slowly. It's birchfieldhighlands.org. org, and Lovely. you can find it also if you look at at my website, uh, emmysgoodeating.com. brilliant there is so much there honestly we've covered so much i'm sure we can we talk really about have. this all day and i hope i hope it inspires i hope it inspires people to think you know we're interested we're going to have a little bit more you know we're going to look at this and yes you know there's a lot of people having a lot of fun and doing really well and enjoying life and you know there's nothing to worry about you know come and have a look and you know see what it's all about you know see how vegans think Exactly. And um, your book is available on Amazon. Yeah, yeah and, and so, any bookshop, um, any bookshop pretty much um, anywhere in the world. You can just uh, ask for it if they don't have it, but it'll be available. It's on Amazon, of course. Uh, and also request it from your library. If uh, if you've got a local public library, absolutely request it. They will get it for you. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Amelia. It's been lovely. Thank you. Likewise. It's been really lovely, Yvonne. Thank you so much. Thank you.